Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Shreds Takes. I am your host, Michael Shredder, um, and I am joined here today by my Aunt Lori Johnston. Uh, she was a 1984 to 1987 UNC field hockey player. Uh, she, was, she had quite a career. She was a two-time All-American. She was a finalist for the National Player of the Year, which is called the Honda Broderick Award. She won the Jim Hevner Award, which is awarded to the player with the highest GPA in a certain major, and hers was sports broadcasting. And she was three-time All-ACC, but a top 50 player in ACC history, won four ACC titles. And lastly, she was a former USA national team alternate in 1988 Olympics. She was on the national team for four years, but they didn't qualify in 1992. So she retired after that and now is working with emotional intelligence. And again, yeah, she's just a great influence for me. And I'm really glad to have her on. So Aunt Lori, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, you're welcome. Happy to be here, Mike. So I think just get right into it. So, you know, obviously for people who don't know, you know, your your father and my grandfather was an NFL player and an NFL coach. How did basically living under that inspire you and motivate you to become the athlete that you did and even just what you're doing today? Yeah, it's really funny. I think, um, you know, uh, my dad, your papa, was gone a lot. He worked a lot, right? NFL coaches aren't home all the time. And he had five kids. I was the middle of the five kids. And I realized at a pretty young age that I was pretty good at sports. I, you know, I would play soccer or basketball or softball and I, and I was pretty good. And I realized it was a great way for me to get attention. So uh, when you have somebody that is, you know, somewhat famous, you know, a defensive coordinator or the Philadelphia Eagles or something, and um, people want his attention all the time, well, so do his kids. So I, at an early age, recognized that being good at sports was a way to, you know, get my mom and dad's attention when there were five of us. Um, then it moved into more of really understanding where you can go in sports. I don't know, you know, back in when I graduated high school in 1984 and Title IX had not been around that long. And it was really my dad, you know, because of his connections that he had in the NFL and because of his connections at the NCAA level, it was really my dad who would come home and say, you know, Lori, you could get a scholarship for this. Like if you really put your mind to it and work hard, you know, did you know that you could actually get a scholarship and go to college for this? So that, that's really where he was the biggest influence on me. Yeah. Yeah. Something I was going to say too, is just like for me as an athlete too, like I play basketball at Amherst college and, you know, Papa was a big influence on me as well, because people don't realize this, but when you're, when you're older, you have a lot of wisdom. And the fact that he also has had a lot of experience, he would always kind of give me these things after games that my dad would not tell me. Cause he would just, he gave from the athlete's perspective, he kind of just tell me like what I should be doing certain ways. So hearing that is interesting enough because it also must have been weird too, moving around all over the place too. Um, at least my, you know, my mom's experience was like that too. So getting to the second question, what was it like playing at Shawnee and how did that uh, influence you to go to UNC specifically? Yeah, so we moved to uh, Medford, New Jersey from Georgia. We had lived in Atlanta and I was in middle school. And as a kid, I played soccer. That's what I played. That's my big so soccer was the thing I was really pretty good at. And we moved to New Jersey and I kept playing soccer. But when I got to Shawnee freshman year, there was no soccer. There was no such thing as girls soccer. There was boys soccer in the fall. But at that time, New Jersey high school athletics did not have women's soccer. Women in the fall played field hockey. That's what you did in South Jersey. 
and Shawnee had a really good field hockey team. Um, so, you know, freshman year, all my friends were going to play. So I thought, well, what the heck, I'll give this a try. And I went out for the team and, um, you know, learned how to play field hockey my freshman year. By the time I graduated, um, not only myself, but also one of my teammates, we, uh, we had been state champions a couple times at Shawnee. I don't remember how many times. It was either two or three. Um, but one of my teammates, the co-captain with me, she had gotten a full ride to University of Iowa, and I did the same for University of North Carolina. So we ended up you know, playing each other in college. And, uh, but going to Shawnee was um, a pinnacle point because it really – it really was one of the top schools in the country for field hockey. So if you were good at Shawnee, you got a lot of looks from college coaches. Yeah. Talk a little bit also about your high school coach. Um, from what I've heard um, that, you know, they made a huge influence on you at you. I didn't even know this, but like really famous coach, um, you know, my mom was bringing that up. So talk a little bit about, you know, sure. how that uh, made a difference for you too. Um, just like making field hockey kind of a sport that you loved also. Yeah, yeah. So her name is Bobby Schultz. She has since retired from Shawnee, but she and I are friends on Facebook. So I get to keep up with her and see what she's doing. Um, you know, Bobby was just, she was such an advocate for her girls. You know, she would always call us, you know, her girls. And she directed us to uh, the different Olympic developmental camps when we were a young age. Um, she worked us so hard. Shawnee was so good because she worked us so hard. So I'll give you an example. After games, you know, you, you play a full field hockey game in the fall. After our games, she would have us run. And I don't remember, Mike, if it was half an hour, 20 minutes or whatever it was, but she would have us run continuously after the game while the JV game was going on around whatever the school perimeter was at the high school we were at. So we'd play an entire game and then she'd get her stopwatch out and her whistle and be like, okay, girls, you know, take off. And I, I do look back on that and think, so it probably kind of rubbed it in on the teams that we had beat, right? It probably, you know, made them feel like, what are these girls doing? But it was just Miss Schultz's way of making sure that we stayed at that top level. Like we, she just constantly wanted us to be out running, out fitnessing. She had a really solid understanding of angles. Field hockey is very much an angular. It's all about flats and throughs. She totally understood that an absolute, you know, student of the game, and just a really nice person. Everybody loved Miss Schultz. Uh, and I think she is in the New Jersey High School Hall of Fame as a coach. I'm 99% I'm sure. Really neat lady. Also at UNC, obviously, you played under Coach Sheldon, who's a legend in the field hockey realm. Talk a little bit about that, you know, how it made a difference, as you saw, between Coach Schultz and Coach Sheldon, and how that kind of built your career, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. So Karen, Coach Shelton, and Bobby Schultz could not have more different personalities. Uh, Karen was in her own right. She was a two-time National Player of the Year, Honda Brodick Award winner, two-time Olympian, has a bronze medal from the 84 Olympics. Incredibly competitive woman. And when I played for Karen, um, she was quite young. I, I think maybe she was like late 20s when I was on the team and very focused. She was all about fitness, a little bit of a correlation between her and Bobby in the sense that at Carolina, we were the no, most fit team in the nation. There was no question. It was all about fitness. And Karen always said, and I think this to this day, I think she still recruits this way because she's still the, still the head coach there, is she always said, give me an athlete. I'll turn them into a great field hockey player. 
And she lived by that the way she recruited. She wanted athletes, multi-sport athletes, that she knew she could turn into great field hockey players. Um, I had an opportunity to go back and coach with her as an assistant coach for a year when I was playing on the national team. And I got to watch um, how she did that when she recruited. Uh, so um, yeah, very intense. She's softened over the years. I know Karen very well. I, I'd like to say she's a good friend of mine. Um, and with her assistant coaches and uh, just you know being a coach for a long time, and she would say this if she were here right now, she has softened. She was very hard on us. We always had a great relationship, but she was tough, man. She was a, she was a tough cookie. Yeah. So a lot of times, I mean, you've probably heard of at least the last dance documentary and people have discussed like the really harsh leaders, like a Michael Jordan, and maybe, you know, the guys who maybe are a little bit nicer to your teammate, a little bit pick, pick you up a lot more. Uh, don't yell. Did you like the fact that she was extremely tough on you though? Like, did that make you a better player than maybe someone that being a little bit more, I guess, nicer to you because I mean in my opinion I, I prefer a coach that at least like will be positive to you but also like you know be tough on you when they need to be did you think that benefited you as well just having a really tough coach on uh, how you played yeah I Karen pushed me Karen coached everybody differently she 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 understood at that time that um she tried to figure out what motivated every single one of us and used that and her method of um, coaching me, she knew I always wanted to be the fastest when we were doing our 12 minute run. I wanted to win all of the lines, you know, uh, when we would do our workouts. And, and so that's when she would push me. She would literally, you know, yell if I wasn't first, she'd be like, you know, come on, Bruni, you can, you can do this. Outside of that, she was quite nurturing. She, it, it's just she knew when to push my buttons. And um, if she had not known that, you know, if, if it wasn't an appropriate time or place to be tough, I, I would have struggled with that. There definitely were people on my team that uh, did not react well to her tough coaching style. And again, over the years, she, you know, you just learn. You just become more um, experienced. You learn more about your own personality. And now I really think she's in a groove, probably has been for the last 20 years, but she's in a groove on that, you know, toughness and, and, and motivating and, and, you know, kind. You want to be kind as well as a coach. So I, when she pushed my buttons at the right time, she could yell as loud as she wanted to. It was just she had to know when was the right time. So transitioning, you know, obviously you played, like I said before, four years on the USA Olympic team. Uh, you were an alternate for the 88 Olympic team. And then, you know, you would have been probably an alternate if, if the 92 Olympics happened. Um, just explain a little bit to people who don't really understand the whole process, how difficult it was to get into that Olympic team. And also just like the whole process of being involved with the USA. So that's two tough questions there, but just, you know, answer that however you feel comfortable, I guess. Okay. Well, interrupt me if I get long-winded because this, this, this could take a while, but um, so back when I was going through uh, the U.S., they called it the U.S. Developmental Program. That's what it was called back then. And they had camps and you would go from D camp to C camp to B camp and then A camp. A camp was the U.S. squad. That was the top 60 players in the country. I think I was a sophomore in college when I made the U.S. squad. So, for example, they had an under 21 team. And I got to go to Italy as a part of the under 21 national team when I was in college. Um, when I was a senior in college, 
1988, the, the winter of 1988, it was over Christmas break. And we had the Olympic tryouts for the 1980 Olympics. They were in Seoul, Korea. And those tryouts were right around New Year's up at Rutgers University in the big bubble. And at the time, I was on the U.S. squad. I was on the top 60 in the nation. And I was trying to make the Olympic team or what we also call the U.S. national team. The U.S. national team is the top 16 people. So you have a pool of 60 that you then choose 16 from. Um, I, I had always dreamed, I had always visualized the 92 Olympics uh, because in general, uh, field hockey is a lot like women's soccer where your best players are typically between 25 and 30 years of age because you just get more experienced and again, understand angles better. So when I was trying out for the 88 Olympics, I knew I was a long shot. I didn't really think I was gonna make the team. Um, so when they announced the top 16, I was number 17. I was there if somebody blew out a knee, if somebody, you know, whatever, something happened, I would be that sixth next person, you know, that was there to play. So I had to stay in shape. I got to do a lot of traveling. Um, but I was really just there, you know, if somebody got hurt. Uh, right after the Olympics, right after the 88 Olympics, the woman that I played behind, she retired. Uh, so I then played on, I was one of the top 16 players in the nation. I was a right back. I played right back uh, for nearly four years. It was like three and a half years. And during that time, there's a bunch of tournaments that you've probably heard of, things like the Pan Am Games, the World Cup. I played in the World Cup in Australia. The Intercontinental Games were a big tournament in India. So typically every year, there's a really large international tournament that takes place and it's all leading you up to the Olympics and it's all the qualifiers for the Olympics. So again, always visualizing and having my eye on 1992, um, it was incredibly heartbreaking when we did not qualify. Uh, so you had to be top eight in the world at the time. Uh, and I think we came in about 10th. Now, now they, act, they have 12 women's teams. So we would have gone if it was now, uh, but that, at, that, at that time it was only the top eight teams in the country. Um, and so I retired and that was kind of a big decision for me to make. I, you know, I was 26 years old and um, the 92 Olympics were in Barcelona. The 96 Olympics were in Atlanta. When you are the host country, I don't know if you know this, but when you are the host country for Olympics, your nation's team automatically qualifies. So I knew my national team was going to the 96 Olympics. And I knew if I had stayed on the team, I could have played and been in the 96 Olympics. I just had other things I wanted to do. I, I just did not, I think, want to continue my career until I was 30 years old. Um, many, many of my friends did, and they, they did wonderful things. Many of them are, you know, Division One coaches now and have had wonderful careers. It's just a choice that I made to retire when we didn't qualify for 92. So I think you brought up an interesting point, just how now, obviously, there's more teams that are allowed into the Olympics than were back then. I think that's a good way to transition to this question is more, what are you seeing the differences between field hockey when you played versus when today? I mean, obviously, the big one, before I think this one's an obvious one, is just made the strength training is just better um, overall. But from like a playing standpoint, um, how do you see any big differences? Yeah, so the fitness level and the strength training is much more accelerated. I almost, it's almost as though when the level that I played on on the national team 
is the level at which college is being played at now. Um, these collegiate athletes and, and then the international ones are amazing. And the deafness of their stick moves um, is, it's just so much better than, than when I played. We, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, when I played, you know, field hockey sticks are only right-handed. I don't, do you know that, Mike, that you only can play right-handed? I, I do, I do. Okay. Well, so back when I played, it never occurred to us to turn that stick over backwards for the flat side and take left-handed shots. We just did not do it. Now that is a skill that like high school players can do. Um, a very elevated skill back in the early nineties is now literally something that good high schoolers can do. So um, the fitness levels, the strength training, absolutely. We did not, we, we strength trained in the off season. We never strength trained in season. That just wasn't something we did. Um, and then there are a few rules that are different. There's like self-start now, uh, which is similar. You know how like in lacrosse, when they have the ball and they just go, they don't have to throw it in. That was not a rule when I played. So it's just made, the, the game is just much faster when I, when I played it, much faster and much more athletic. Do you think that's better that it's faster paced um, than when you played? Because I mean, some old timers who think about basketball are not the big fan of the way the game is played today. Um, so yeah, I mean, just answer that. Do you think it's better today than you? Than yeah, I do. Because back when I played, um, there were a lot of whistles blown. A lot of, you know, you, 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 um, just some of the rules that we had. We had this rule called obstruction, where you couldn't put your body between you and the ball. And it just slowed things down. It made the whistle blow all the time. And it just wasn't as fun. Now the whistle like barely blows unless it hits like a girl's foot or something. Uh, and I do think it's been purposeful. The reason they've changed these rules is to make it a faster, more engaging game to watch, not to just play. Uh, totally get your point about basketball though. It's different. It's so much outside shooting, shoot, so much more like outside. It's kind of like all about the three point shot. It, 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 it's kind of how I feel when I, when I watch college games now. So yeah, I mean, that, that's what's all about kind of three point shooting. And it's even weirder as a big, because as a big, you got to be able to defend the perimeter and be able to shoot and handle the basketball. When you were big in 1990, all you had to do is stand within five feet of the basket and that's who you guarded. Yeah. And even at the division three level, I see that a little bit too, is that the uh, division three level, there's more traditional post players than there are in division one. A lot of division one players are more, big and athletic that are like can rim protect and pick and roll well or in but in division three it's more very you know undersized but skilled post players who maybe aren't as athletic as a division one guy so it's interesting to hear that you take that you like the game a little bit better because it's faster pace and less of the whistle because for me it's a bit a bit of an adjustment where I train because I have to learn how to shoot better because of the fact that that's really a skill that I have to be able to do and also just be able to defend people who are you know, wanting to shoot and wanting to dribble, which is a little bit interesting too. Yeah, yeah. It's a much different game for somebody like you at, in 2020 than it was for somebody like you in 1990. Whatever. You know, you literally would stand under the basket and never bring your arms down, you know, just to stand there, rebound and throw the ball. You know, it's much different. So, yeah. I, I guess another thing I want to get into too. So as I mentioned before, you work with emotional intelligence. So tell people where you work and what what got you to doing this? Like, why is this something that, you know, you wanted to get into? Yeah, sure. 
So I have had a career, and so after I retired from field hockey, I, I basically went into a career of professional sales. I've been a salesperson for you know upward of 30 years. Uh, and now I am running a business, a 12 state area business in the Midwest for a company called Talent Smart. And Talent Smart was started by two authors that wrote a very famous book on emotional intelligence. And coming from the um, background of sports, of, of athletics, uh, both at Carolina and the national team, more so on the national team, we had a sports psychologist that would travel with us. You know, we went to a lot of really um, kind of scary places when you're in your young 20s. You know, spent a month and a half in Delhi in India, spent a month in the old, former Soviet Union in Moscow and Kiev. And so we had a sports psychologist that did a lot of breathing techniques, a lot of visualization, you know, visualize yourself making the perfect pass, all the way to things that visualize yourself walking out during the opening ceremonies, things like that. Well, those are actually emotional intelligence techniques. So over my business career, I have always followed articles and thought leaders um, in emotional intelligence. And it just so happens that one of these thought leaders, kind of really famous person, is a gentleman named Dr. Travis Bradbury. Travis and his colleague, Gene Greaves, wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence 2.0. And that is who I work for. Travis recruited me to this company. And we um, help train organizations and people um, basically to be peak performers. And peak performers are athletes. They're, you know, um, people in corporations, a lot of military. We train the Air Force, the United States um, uh, Air National Guard, Army National Guard, Army, uh, just to use techniques uh, to help with self-management and social awareness. Uh, there's some other things too, but I don't wanna bore you. But that's, this has been a long time passion. So I did a lot of sales, kind of followed emotional intelligence, uh, but an absolute believer in the power of positive thinking, the power of visualization. And I literally, when Travis reached out to me to recruit me, I thought it was like a Russian bot. I really did. I thought, is this a joke? Is he like, because this is such a passion. So I've been here about a year and a half now. Uh, and I have to admit, during the times of COVID, emotional intelligence has never been more important. Very challenging time. Uh, but I know I'm in the right place. Yeah, I think I just, I'm going to commentate a little bit on that too. I'm a psychology major at Amherst, and I definitely get involved in the sports psychology realm a lot. And it's so important, just like emotional intelligence, just generally, just being able to kind of be able to react well to situations, being able to build good relationships with people, to kind of just understand that people don't necessarily have the same situations as you. Everyone views things differently. And that's something I kind of looked from studying journalism now, is that everyone views the world differently than you do. So being able to be reciprocal in your emotions is just so important. So I think that's just really cool that you work in that because as an athlete to a former athlete, you just, you have the ability to connect to so many different audiences because you have a big platform that you had. And that's just, that's really cool too, because, you know, so many people during COVID are not having the opportunity to kind of have a positive outlook on things. Right. And that's, and it's tough because, you know, you have COVID, which is, you know, a very scary virus. I mean, we have not seen before, it, you know, 150,000 deaths in the United States. It's, it's scary for sure. And then different, like just being able to do that is really cool. But, you know, if you want to expand a little bit more about that, but yeah, it's just that, I think that's just something that, you know, you do that's besides sports, that's just obviously very inspiring to a lot of people. 
Yeah, I do. Mike, I do think, you know, it's okay not to be positive all the time. It's okay to have feelings of being afraid. Uh, that's really what emotional intelligence is about. Everybody thinks, oh, isn't emotional intelligence like you're just a nice person? It, it's not. It's a skill you can increase. And a lot of it is just being aware of yourself, having self-awareness. So when I wake up in the morning and have anxiety about, um, you know, what your cousin Katie's school now being online full time, I can be aware, I, I, I'm conscientious that um, every thought that I have starts out as an emotional thought. It's actually physically impossible for it not to. Your, your thoughts all start in your brainstem and have to go through your limbic system, which is your emotional brain. So even like just understanding that it's okay if I am stressed out or okay if I don't feel well, you just have to be able to flip quickly into how am I going to manage that? You know, take a deep breath, go for a run, work out, call a friend, um, those types of things. And right now, it's such an important time because uh, we are social beings and you and I, I mean, this is great. I'm so happy I can see you, but I, I, I'm, I would love, I'd rather be with you and your family, you know, giving you guys all hugs and we can't do that right now. Um, so we just have to find ways to stay connected. Uh, and it's okay. You don't always have to stay positive and always have to you know, be in a great mood. You just have to be able to recognize, I'm feeling this way. Others may be feeling differently. And how am I going to interact with them? So, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's hard to keep connections during this time too. And, you know, I've been able to do it through this podcast with a lot of people, but it's hard because, you know, for me, I'm a very social person. I need to reach out and talk to people face-to-face -face a lot. So it's just because how I can build connections, how I can kind of understand how people think. Because I actually love the fact that people have diverse thinking and can think differently than me because you learn a unique perspective. And from everything as an athlete, just from anything that you're doing in life, you know, you have a platform, but if you're willing to engage with people in different conversations, like even just debating sports, for example, right? People look at totally games totally differently. You know, the way I, you know, I wrote an article today about the games from last night. And someone could look at that and say, you're totally wrong in the way you're viewing the games, right? Because they view the game maybe differently. But um, I think that's, again, just, just you know, that awareness. Yeah, I, I think that's an important piece for people that don't get that all the time is that, you know, like I, I try to be as positive as I can, but it, it's that kind of awareness that people are going to be going through different situations. Well, I think that's great. You realize that at a young age, because I got to tell you, when I was your age, I thought I knew everything. <laughs> it's, now, it's not until I matured a little bit where I could really appreciate other people's differing opinions. So that's pretty wonderful. Uh, if you can do that at, you know, at your young age, it took me, it took me a little longer. So. Yeah, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Aunt Lori, thank you so much for being on. I think this is really helpful for a lot of people. And yeah, just hope the viewers, uh, you know, give this a listen. Thank yeah. You. Okay, great. Go Tar Heels. Okay. See ya. Bye, Mike. <laughs>